Uh, we're going to let the children be dismissed at this time for junior church. And as they go, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 12 and 13. 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and 13. I want to begin our reading this morning in 1 Corinthians, 11 and, or 1 Corinthians 12 and verse 27. Verse 27. The title of our discussion this morning is Body Language which will become very clear what that is in the uh, last two thoughts that I shared with you this morning. Verse 27, Paul says, Now you are the body of Christ. Now this is pulling off of a conversation about unity and diversity that is present in the church, a high range of variety that God has built into the church as his body. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is part of it. And in the church, God has appointed, first of all, apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those who have gifts of healing, those who are able to help others, those with gifts of administration, those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But eagerly desire the greater gifts. And now I will show you the most excellent way. If I speak of the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge and I have faith that can move mountains but have not love, I am nothing. If I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and I surrender my body to the flames, but have not love, I gain nothing. Very interesting passage of Scripture. I'll tell you this morning, my goal is not to delve into the aspects of it that in church history have been controversial, problematic. Uh, this morning, I want to focus on just some of the basic truths that emerge out of this text that will help us to become healthier as a church body. I want to just kind of review real quickly the thoughts that we have covered up to this point in this discussion about body life and the church. If you look at verse 7 of chapter 12, you find the first couple thoughts that we established. To each one, a manifestation or a gift of the Spirit is given for the common good. And what we discussed from that verse and verse 11, which says all these are the work of one and the same spirit. He gives them to each one just as he determines. What we kind of established in our first week of discussion on body life was this. Spiritual gifts are divine enablements, meaning they are abilities that God gives to individual Christians. They are given by the indwelling spirit who takes up residence in the heart of every believer they're given to every believer, and they're given for the common good. In other words, gifts aren't given to me to enhance my personal experience with Christ. Okay, those talents, capacities, gifts, whatever word you want to use to define them, they're given by the Spirit of God for the benefit of the body as a whole. Okay, so the Spirit of God doesn't come to make your life better. He comes to make your life more useful and more glorifying to God. And when that happens, you will find that the result of that kind of a Spirit-filled life is joy. Okay, we usually flip it around and say, I'm going to seek joy, and then when I'm happy, I'm going to do some, something for someone else. The Apostle Paul flips it around. 
He says God is giving you capacities that enable you to benefit the body of Christ as a whole. And when you do that, when you walk in the Spirit, in His power, you will find joy in your Christian life. So, spiritual gifts are divine enablements. Secondly, last week we looked at this idea. That the body is a unit with many parts. Look at verse 12. He says, the body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts, and though all its parts are many, they form one body. So the body is a unit, and every believer in the body is indwelt by the Spirit of God. Verse 13. For we were all baptized into, or by one Spirit, into one body, in spite of our background. And we were all made to drink of one Spirit. So every Christian is part of this larger picture by design and is indwelt by the Spirit to be effective in that larger picture. Okay, so the spiritual gifts come to make us effective in the context of church life, not individually, okay, in terms of spiritual gifts. Other thing we looked at is this, verse 27, it's what leads us into our discussion this morning. He says, now you, speaking to the local church in Corinth, now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So the church is not by definition, by definition, an organization, it is by definition an organism. It is a living body. Okay, now whenever you deal with living bodies, when you think about your own physical body, what you are concerned about is the health of that body. Okay, that's what becomes critical. Not do you have a body with all its parts, but is the body you have healthy? And when it's not, you go and get that addressed. You take steps to be sure that that body remains healthy or becomes healthy. This morning as we discuss this last uh, kind of topic of the, the, the church as the body of Christ, I want to focus our attention on health as a church. Okay, the health of a church is not determined by how many people attend it. Okay, and often we think in terms of health equals numbers. Now often a healthy church is going to be a growing church okay that is at some level undeniable but the health of a church is primarily determined by its function the health of a physical body is not determined by its presence it's determined by how well it is working together as an organism so this morning i want us to just put our attention on this idea how can we become healthier as a church family Okay, we live in a world that pays an enormous amount of attention to our bodies physically being healthy because we know that when the body is healthy, life becomes more enjoyable and we become more effective. Same thing is true in relationship to the church. God wants us to be concerned about whether or not the chapel at Warren Valley, which is a representation of Jesus in our slice of the world, He wants us to be sure that that body that represents Christ is healthy. Okay, and this morning let's look at some ideas that will enable us, some values that will enable us to become a healthier church family. Let's pick up then in verse 28. Verse 28, he says, In the church God has appointed. Okay, in the church God has appointed. In the church, which verse 27 says, is the body of Christ. It is his means of representing himself to the world. In that church, he has appointed. Then Paul goes into a list of what we would call spiritual gifts. 
Okay, now, the first thought I want to kind of impress upon you this morning from this text is this. We will be healthy when we respect the church, the body's divine design. Okay, we will be healthier when we respect the church, the body's divine design. When I say divine, I mean the sovereign way in which God has orchestrated the chapel at Warren Valley. The people that he has brought into her, the gifts that they represent, the gifts that they manifest, we will be healthier when we respect the way that God has put the church together. Now, what, what do we learn from the list that follows? Okay, What we learn is, I think, this. There is unity in the church. It is a body. But in it, God has appointed a variety of capacities, talents, or gifts. Okay, He is given to or deposited within the chapel of Mar- in, at Warren Valley individuals who represent various kinds of capacities. And I believe every Christian has capacities from God that are to be used in the context of church life. So unity is achieved by God through diversity. That's the divine design. And that diversity is strengthened through the variety that is present in the church. Okay, so health, unity is present in a stronger way when all of the parts understand their function, and when the rest of the body respects the function of each individual part. So, in the church, the divine design is this. There is a planned, rich diversity. Okay, a planned and rich diversity. You can read through this list. Understand the list is representative, not exhaustive. Okay, it's a, if you take that list, compare it to the earlier list in verses uh, 9 through 10, you're going to find that the list don't even match. Why? Because Paul's fundamental concern is not to give an exhaustive list of gifts. His fundamental concern is to promote health in a church that is, in Corinth, very divided, fragmented. And he's seeking to pull the church together to call it to be healthy. And one of the ways the church will acquire greater health is when it realizes that it is put together by God for God-given purposes. And each church is unique to its area. Okay, so there is a divine design the list is not exhaustive but representative but the other thing i think that's interesting is if you notice in this list what comes at the end of the list you find two gifts that are mentioned at the list at the end of the list he says to some there is given speaking in different kinds of tongues go down then to verse 30, which is the second list. End of the list again. He says, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret. Go back up to verse 10, just to see this emphasis. To another, speaking in different kinds of tongues, and to still another, the interpretation of tongues. Okay, now, here's what's going on. Okay, at the end of these three lists, you find a very specific set of gifts. Okay, now, here's the question that comes to mind. Is Paul saying that tongues are essentially or necessarily necessarily a problem. Okay? I think the, I'm going to put this out for you and not argue it extensively. I don't think that Paul is saying that tongues are the problem among spiritual gifts, but certainly in the church in Corinth, tongues are the problem. Okay? This expression of 
supernatural expression of a supernatural language with interpretation somehow had kind of risen up the pecking, pecking order and was becoming a highly valued gift. It had come somehow slipped out of proportion and was becoming the means by which people were measuring their spirituality. That'll become clear when we get into chapter 14. For now, just want to just kind of lay this out, that there is this kind of order in this list, and at the end of the list is the issue that is the problem in the church in Corinth. Now, when you get to verse 29, Paul starts to list rhetorical questions, okay? He starts to ask individual questions that I think demand a certain kind of an answer, and that is borne out more in the original language. He says, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, do all have the gift of healing, do all speak in tongues, do all interpret. Okay, now, he, he, he's kind of ramping it up, isn't he? Is everyone this gift? Is everyone that gift? He's, he's pressuring, and, and the kind of the way it sets up is, you, you kind of hit a point as you read it where you're saying, of course not. Okay, it's, it's not the divine design that any one gift becomes the gift that everybody is seeking. Paul's saying because of the analogy of the body, it would be ridiculous to make any one gift the measure of all gifts or to make any one gift the measure of true spirituality or commitment in the church. Okay, so the first thing we need to do is realize that there is a divine design in the church. And in that design, there is unity and diversity, and the diversity is enriched by variety. Okay, so the fact that we are different in the church, that we bring different capacities to bear, is part of the way God made us. And he wants us to appreciate each other's gifts. No gift, I think we can summarize by saying, no gift goes to everyone, and no gift is the definitive evidence of the Spirit's presence. Okay? So no one particular gift becomes the definitive evidence. Oh, that God's at work in that person's life because they have this gift. Okay? There's a richer diversity in the church, and God wants us to appreciate that. That diversity is part of a divine design. And, when, and a church is healthy when it realizes there is an, a wide array of gifts that make up a healthy church. And we need to value each other's contribution because what that will do is it will kill pride. I think one way you could say this is in the church, there are no MVPs. Okay, there are no most valuable players in the context of the body of Christ. And the truth is this. When you watch a Super Bowl game or a World, Se World Series game or an NBA championship, they, they always, there's always this question, who's going to get the MVP? Okay, well, the bottom line is MVPs don't win games. Teams win games. Teams is where there's greater effect. Teams are always more effective than individuals. Okay, and Paul is comparing the church to a body. It has a multitude of parts. And when we ignore this concept of most valuable players, the church will essentially become healthier. Why? We're going to stop leaning all of our weight on any one individual or group of individuals. Because that's what happens when we get this idea that the divine design is that God has put these really unique, super gifted people in the church, and they're the most important. Paul says that's devastating. That's why he says, do all do this, do all do that. He's like, of course not. Because the divine design is fundamentally different than that approach that looks for an MVP. 
Pastor's not the MVP. Elders are not to be the MVPs in the church. Worship leaders are not. The church doesn't get built around any particular gift. The church is a body. It has an array of parts. And when all of those parts are functioning, the church becomes healthy and effective in its God-given mission. We need to fight for a recognition of the divine design and never let individuals say, well, that person's really important in the church. This person's less important. It's not how Paul sees church. It's not how God designed the church. Okay, I think it's very, very important that we respect the divine design of the church. Second thought is this, and it emerges at the end of, or at the first half of verse 31. After giving this discussion about gifts, we don't all do any one of these things. Paul says, but earnestly desire the greater gifts. Now the word but in my, in, in my Bible, I always circle that word when it occurs. Because it's, it's indicating that there's some type of a contrast or transition that's taking place in the flow of thought. Okay, do all do this, do all do that. No, but, and notice what he says, earnestly desire the greater gifts. Now that is a puzzling statement in light of what I've already said, isn't it? What does it seem to indicate? It seems to indicate that there are greater gifts. The question is, what is meant by greater in Paul's discussion? If he keeps suppressing and holding down the apparently supernatural gifts, every time he lists them, he's pushing down some. He's holding them till the end of the list, I think to, to kind of bring balance into the church's understanding of how the spiritual gifts are to work. But in this verse... He says, desire earnestly the greater gifts. What are the greater gifts? Let's see, that becomes the question. Anybody want to answer that question? <laughs> okay. Is love and charity a gift? Okay, so this is what becomes very interesting. Because chapter 13, he's going to roll into this discussion about love. But is love the greater gift? Or is Paul even talking specifically about the charismata, which is the word that's used? Or is he using this idea, desire the greater gifts, to point to a larger category? Is he talking about individual gifts on the list? Or a new perspective with which we look at all the gifts? Okay, I'm going to argue that I think Paul is talking about a new perspective by which we look at all the gifts. What the church should crave, what every individual in the church should be wanting, is to be used by God. Right? Not to, oh, I want that. The problem in Corinth was they wanted this gift. No, they wanted this. And Paul's saying, wait a minute. Are all prophets? Are all apostles? Do all speak in tongues? It's corrective. He's saying that's not the way it is. There is a better way. The better way is love. The greater gifts is a desire in the context of all the gifts in Scripture to be used by God. To do what? That becomes the question. Okay? So the second thought I want to leave you to is this. We should desire or seek greater usefulness or service. You can pick your words here. Desire or seek greater usefulness or service in the body of Christ. And he sets it up by this strong contrast. But instead of everybody going after this or that, desire earnestly the greater gifts. And I think the greater gifts are those that are used to build unity in the body of Christ, which can be any one of the gifts. Okay, the question is, why am I using my gift? Because what you're going to find in Corinth is some people were using their gifts for self-promotion and to gain prominence. And that's exactly what Paul goes after in the first three verses of chapter 13. To take your gift and to use it as a means of showing yourself contradicts 
God's intention in giving the gifts. I'm thankful like, with someone like Carmelo who helps us out in worship that we don't have someone who is interested in putting himself in front of people. Okay? You don't, need, you don't need people that get up and do what they do to be seen by men. We need people that get up and say, what my desire this morning is to serve God in this capacity. To be used by Him because usefulness is what we should all be craving. Not what gift do you have, what gift do you have, but do you crave being used by God? Do you earnestly desire? And that word uh, in, in uh, the beginning of verse 31, but desire earnestly the greater gifts is a present imperative. It's a command that has a continuing effect. Always be seeking greater usefulness in your life in the body of Christ. Now, greater, we define greater usefulness. The, the, the one thing I want to focus on is this, the interesting nature of the command. Okay? Desire earnestly the greater gifts. Okay? And yet, Verse 7 says that the Spirit is the one who distributes gifts. Verse 11 says that the same Spirit gives them to each one as he determines. Verse 28 says in the church, God has appointed. Okay, so here's the question. Is it appropriate to pray to be more greatly, to pray to be more greatly used by God? Is it appropriate to, to pray for God to increase your effectiveness by bringing certain capacities into your life? Is that an appropriate way to pray? Look at chapter 14 of verse 1. Follow the way of love, but earnestly desire not greater gifts, but what? Spiritual gifts. Okay, now that, that becomes a little bit of an apparent contradiction, doesn't it? I think what Paul's saying is this, and this may be kind of a new concept for some of us. I think Paul's saying is if you want a capacity from God that is going to enable you to have a greater impact on the body of Christ, to build it up, not to increase your reputation, but to increase your usefulness as an instrument in God's hand, I think he's saying go for it. And I don't think it's contradictory at all to say that God sovereignly distributes gifts as you seek him for those capacities. Now what I mean is this. You desire for a gift of service, a gift of administration. You want God to increase your ability in a certain area. Why don't you go ask him? Jesus said something like this, didn't he? He said, you have not because you ask not. And sometimes you don't get what you ask for because you're asking for it so that you may consume it upon your own desires. You want it for how it will make you look. And he's saying, if you want it for the purpose of building up the body of Christ, pray according to the will of God. Father, thy will be done. If that's my attitude in prayer, I'll give you this my personal conviction as a result of this study for me. Is that it's entirely appropriate to say, God, would you give me that gift so that I can effectively impact the body of Christ that you've called me to live and serve in? So that I can make a difference for you. So that this greater context takes on the definition of usefulness, but it is greater gifts, and 14.1 says to seek them. So I don't want to ignore that. I want to say that we should seek and desire greater usefulness in the body of Christ and that greater usefulness will sometimes come through the bestowment of a spiritual gift into an individual's life. So a question. Do you desire and pray for greater usefulness in the body of Christ? Do you pray and say, God, show me how you want to use my life 
to make a difference in the life of a brother or sister so that our church can be truly and more effectively the body of Christ, healthier as the body of Christ, with greater impact as the body of Christ. Put it on your prayer list. Say, God, give me capacities that will render me more effective, but not for myself. Because as you ask for this, there should be a bit of trembling and fear. Because the overall context tells us that spiritual gifts can produce pride in their function and use. So there's a, in the use, there's a warning that kind of lies behind the scenes here. Because some in Corinth were using the gifts for personal promotion. Paul's saying, not that, this greater usefulness for the glory of God and the church that he has called you to be part of. Second half of verse 31, which I believe begins the, the uh, discussion on the topic of love. Okay, and just a, a side note for you. Sometimes the chapter divisions that were put in later, they weren't put in the original writing. Sometimes they miss a little bit. This is a case where there's a miss. Okay, Paul says, earnestly desire the greater gifts. And now... Okay, which means now I'm going to move on in topic to a new thought. And now I will show you the most excellent way. Okay, and the idea of way is it's, it's a path. Okay, that's the idea of the original word. Paul says, I'm going to show you a better way to function in the body of Christ than this way that says certain gifts have greater prominence in the church. Certain gifts give higher prominence, higher regard to individuals. He says, oh no, no, in the church there is a better way. And that is the way that Paul is now going to impress upon the church in Corinth. Because this church has problems in relationship to spiritual gifts. What is the better way? Well, I, I don't think I'm going to surprise anybody by saying that the theme of 1 Corinthians 13 is love. Okay? theme of 1 Corinthians 13 is love in the body of Christ. It is love pouring over, saturating, and affecting everything in the context of church life. That's kind of the, the theme that's going to emerge here, that if you have love, it will bring your function in regards to spiritual gifts under control. It will allow them to work in a way that brings honor and glory to God. So if you said to me, Pastor Tim, what does the second half of verse 31 basically mean? I think it means this. Make love the priority in all things. I think what Paul is saying is, love is more important than your gifts. Okay? Love is more important than your gifts. Love is not a gift. Love is a choice that the church makes in relationship to each other on a regular basis. Okay? So make love the priority of your life in all things. And folks, I, just as a sidebar, can I say this? If you respect the divine design of God in all of your relationships in life, will your life not go better? If you respect it in your workplace, if you respect it in terms of your government and your relationship to government, if you respect it in your marriage, kids, if you respect God's divine design in your life, doesn't it go better? And the answer is absolutely. It's foolish to ignore the divine design. Secondly, if in the context of my relationships, I say, God, I want to be more useful in my home to my wife and to my kids. I want to be a better employee. I want to be more effective young people in your relationships at work and in school. Won't your life go better? There's just a general wisdom that Paul is taking and applying it in a specific context of the church. But these principles apply and affect all of our lives. 
That is even more true in relationship to this topic. Make love the priority in your life. And this is not the lower levels of love that are described in the Bible. A romantic sort of sexual love. It is not simply brotherly love. It's not simply charity as the King James Version translates this. Because charity takes on the idea of what? Why I just give out morsels or small gifts to people and I'm therefore a charitable person. What this text is calling for is something that far exceeds charity. It's something that exceeds kind of a friendly love and it is certainly something that exceeds a romantic love. Let me give you this definition for love in this context. In its essence, it is the sacrifice of self for the benefit of others. Okay, love is this self-sacrificing attitude for the benefit of others that governs the entirety of one's life. It looks at life as an opportunity to make a positive impact in the life of a brother or sister in Christ, of a husband or a wife, of a co-worker. It lives with an attitude that is self-effacing. doesn't mean a person carries around low self-esteem. It means that they acknowledge that they by God's grace, have the capacity to make a difference in the lives of all those that they come into contact with if they are willing to put self aside and see the value, the preciousness of others. And folks, does that start to ring a bell? Sounds a little bit like Philippians 2, doesn't it? Have this mind in you which also was in Christ Jesus. Although it was God, he put aside all of the divine functions and he came in human flesh, and he served us. You know what helps the church? What helps the church is when we individually say, God, I want the attitude of Christ. I want the attitude of John 3, 16, which helps me to define love, doesn't it? God so loved the world that he gave. And Christ so loved us that he gave, 1 John 3, 16, interestingly enough. This is how we know what love is, John says. Jesus Christ laid down his life, and it goes into this, in the Greek we call it the dative of advantage. Okay, what it means is for the benefit of. Why did Christ give his life so that you and I could have a better life? Why should I give my life in the service of others so that they can have a better life? And when you do that in the context of church, guess what? It is extremely safe. Because as you make that sacrifice for others, someone's got your back. I mean, that's what a healthy church is like. One person sacrifices for the benefit of another person who sacrifices for the benefit of another person. And there's this watching out that within this divine design, there is this desiring usefulness that is motivated by self-sacrificing love. Paul says, you guys want to argue about spiritual gifts, you want to argue about prominence, you want to argue about who has this or that expression. Paul says, I want to show you a better way. And the better way is the way of love. Okay? Now, that just kind of brings that third point. Why why love? Because love, and I think this is interesting, in a discussion about spiritual gifts, which I think is critical to understanding this whole passage, 1 Corinthians 13 happens in a context the context is a discussion about spiritual gifts in the church where there is a problem chapter 12 talks about unity and diversity that is enhanced by variety chapter 14 talks about this struggle between prophecy and tongues 
Okay, in the middle of that discussion, Paul launches into this sidebar that captures the essence that will settle both of those problems. And what settles both of those problems is not another spiritual gift. What settles both of those problems is love that is a choice to sacrifice self for the benefit of others. Because all the spiritual gifts come with a warning sticker that says, handle with care. Love is the context in which spiritual gifts must function in order for them to function safely. Okay? So, love then, for Paul, is the conclusive evidence of the Spirit's presence and of conversion. Galatians 5 verse 22. The fruit of the Spirit is, and what's the first one? Love. In other words, the evidence of the Spirit's presence is this self-effacing, self-sacrificing attitude that frees us to take God-given capacities and pour them out in the lives of others. Love is the acid test of belief and commitment. But the last thought I want to leave with you emerges out of verses 1 through 3. Fascinating passage that most of us are familiar with. Remember, and this is the last thought, remember that love is the context in which gifts must function, okay? So the new way, the better way, is not everybody being overly passionate about spiritual gifts. The new way is everybody being passionate about love, about sacrificing, about meeting the needs of each other. In that setting then, Paul says, remember that love is the context in which all spiritual gifts must function if they are to have an impact, if they are to catch the eye of God. Love is the necessary and indispensable attribute in the church it is to be prominent and supreme i think that is unmistakable from the first three verses of chapter 13 okay it is to be the supreme virtue that the church is seeking after now verses one through three of chapter 13 list incredible experiences or acts and then says in the middle of each verse if i do this but have not love if I do this, but have not love. If I do that, but have not love. And what, what starts to emerge there? there? There is an apparent warning wrapped up in this text. If I do this or that powerful act, but don't have love. If I speak in this way, but don't have love. If I experience this degree of self-sacrifice, but have not love. Okay, so what, what is it saying? It's possible for all those things to occur in the context of church life, but not to be driven by love and if they're occurring outside of the context of love what are they well i think in the context it's pretty clear that if it's not done out of love it's done done out of some level of self-promotion or reputation protection somehow it's working in a way that is very self-centered and paul's saying i'm showing to you a better way the better way is love now why is it that Paul has to lay out these cautions in verses 1 through 3? I think the answer to the question is very simple. My flesh and your flesh has a natural tendency. The natural tendency of my flesh is towards self-preservation. My flesh is not saying, hey, you should sacrifice for that person. You should give up time for that person. You should go help that person. My flesh is saying, take care of me. It's very vocal. All right? It's It's audible. Okay, it's persistent and it needs to be put to death. 
it needs to be put to death so that the life of Christ can live through me. And the life of Christ can be, I think, spoken of as a life of love. Paul says, if I have eloquence, it is never a substitute for love. In fact, what, here's what Paul says. Eloquence without love is like a squeaky door. You ever have a squeaky door in the house and you're thinking somebody should do something about that? Okay, and when they finally do, you're like, oh, it is, I am so glad that that door has stopped squeaking. Why? That squeaking of the door is nothing other than annoying. It, has, it serves no purpose. It's not beneficial in any way. All right, you don't do that when there's music playing. I've never heard a song with this squeaky door going. It adds something to the music. No, it doesn't. It, it's simply annoying. It's like, stop doing that. Okay, can you imagine verse 1? Being gi- given the gift of supernatural languages and it being nothing but an annoyance because when it happens, it's all about the individual. Paul says that's, in effect, what it's like. Powerful displays of insight and faith, verse 2, can never substitute for love. But what can they do? Oh, they can make me very proud. They can make me very proud. Paul says, if I have those things, but don't have love, I am nothing. What is it? Nobody should listen to me. If in speaking those things, my desire is not to love others. Paul says, nobody should listen. I'm nothing. And the third verse is one that I think is very powerful. If I give all that I possess to the poor and surrender my body to the flames, yet have not love, I am nothing. Benevolence and sacrifice have no lasting value without love. What is he saying? I think he's saying this. When sacrifice is motivated by self-interest or is sought to be famous or to get credit, it loses value. Folks, how much of the gospel does that start to bring to mind? How much of the gospel does that start to bring to mind? If I do all these incredible sacrifices, if I give myself in an effort to gain entrance into God's kingdom, you know what it adds up to? It adds up to nothing. Now, here's the good news this morning. Selflessness out of love for others is not necessary to get into heaven. You don't have to finish this text and say, okay, what I need to do to get into heaven first is self-sacrifice. No, you know what? That self-sacrifice was already made for you, wasn't it? That's what we sung about this morning. On the cross, Jesus Christ made a way. He, he demonstrated to you and for you the most incredible love. See, a lot of times people think, if I do enough, if I sacrifice enough, then I'll gain entrance into the body of Christ. I'll be part of God's people. And the truth is this. That sacrifice for you was already made. And if you're part of the body of Christ, if you know Jesus and have a personal relationship with him, here's the cool thing. You might look at this text and say, how do I love like that? How do I love in a self-sacrificing, self-effacing way when I'm wrestling with my flesh, which wants promotion, which wants to be taken care of? How do I get there? Will you remember this? The secret to loving is knowing that you're loved. 1 John 3, 16. This is how we know what love is. 
Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And what does he say? We ought to lay down our life for the brothers. But see, if the essence of love is self-sacrifice, and if without love everything else I do is empty, then what I need to do is I need to examine the cross on a regular basis because it's there that I learn what love is. Romans 5, 8 is the verse that starts to come to mind. God showed his love to us when we were still rebels. Christ died for us. Pastor, do I have to love that annoying person in my life? That person at church that's just so different than me? Do I have to love them? What makes you think you were so attractive? So worthy of the love of Christ? Do you see? See, our love system is so based on merit. I was attracted to my wife because I was attracted to her. She was beautiful to me. And still is. But that's merit. So I can't say my love for my wife is this kind of love. I mean, I want it to be. But it didn't start that way. It started based on merit and based on attraction, not sacrifice. But the love relationship that you have with God started with sacrifice. When you were still a rebel, is what Romans 5.8 is saying, when you were still a sinner, going your own way, Christ died for you. Now, look, if you remember that and know that I am in the family of God, I have a relationship with Jesus Christ because of his sacrifice. No merit. I bring no performance into the relationship. Shouldn't that show me and free me uh, to love in this kind of a way? And apart from that, do I have a model? And the answer is n- not one that is, is, is that compelling. We love him because he first loved us. And if he loved us like that, shouldn't we love each other? That becomes the logical flow. So look at the divine design of the body. God brought all of us together for his glory, and we are so different. No matter how can we get along? Well, there's a key. Value the priority of love. And realize that it is necessary, it is to be supreme, it is essential. And without it, everything I do will not show up in eternity. Apart from love. May God help you. If you're here this morning, you don't know Jesus Christ. May God open your eyes this morning. To see the love of God that was shown for you, that was poured out for you as we sung this morning on the cross of Christ. Realize that the secret to having your heart opened up to love like God wants you to, and and I've never met someone who was offended by 1 Corinthians 13. Everybody I know reads this and says, that is powerful. But the question is, how do I do that? You've got to come to the cross as a sinner who sees that God loved you through the cross of Christ. And wants to have a personal relationship with you. If you've never trusted Christ in that kind of way. And you're listening to this and you're saying. Okay, Pastor Tim, I want to change so that I can love. Stop. Go to the cross. Learn what it is to be loved. And then practice that love. And for everyone who has been to the cross already. Remember when you went to the cross and were loved by Christ. When you were a rebel. And that work of Christ on the cross. Manifested to you by the spirit in your heart will free you to a selfless love of others in the body of Christ. And when we live under that kind of love and exercise our God-given capacities that he has given by divine design, we will become a healthier church. But we have to be willing to kill selfishness, to kill pride, 
to put aside all the things that hinder our busyness, our preoccupation with our lives. We need to put it all aside so that we can be, 1 Corinthians 12, 27, you are the body of Christ. You are his visible representation. And to be his visible representation, representation effectively, love is indispensable as public proof of your relationship with Christ. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Father.